So, good evening, everyone. I see the numbers have grown a little bit, so some more devotees have come. Can you all understand with this method of translation what I'm saying? I guess so. <laughs> Very good. So, as I mentioned this morning, this evening I would ask for questions. So, does anyone have any questions? Yes. Guru Maharaj, I'm reading Srimad Bhagavatam. And uh, I was reading in the fourth canto about the descendants of Dhruva Maharaj. And uh, I think the, the name of the king was Angra. And he didn't have any descendants, any children. So he made a yagya. And then he got the blessing that he would have a, a son. But then that son turned out to be Vena. So why? Why did he get the son like that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> so let them ask the question. But While there are various prescribed methods in the sacred text for acquiring different results, mostly for acquiring good results, people want good karma, they want good sons, good daughters. Hmm? And so it's in their interest to pursue such material um, results with reference to God and by a method that takes the godly factor in life into consideration this is what constitutes being religious, to color one's human life with a, a religious or godly shades, as opposed to spiritual life, which is kind of begins with understanding the limits of humanity and uh, with the intention of transcending the limits of humanity which uh, confine us within birth and death no matter how good of a human life we might have. Hmm? And so sometimes um, while in pursuit of material acquisition by a religious methodology, we may get the result that we're after, ostensibly, but we may also get an extra result, um, which may appear to be a negative, but in fact may be a positive in terms of 
providing negative inspiration for moving from a religious orientation to life to a spiritual orientation in life. So, in that instance, the negative result is a far greater and more positive result than the apparent positive result of getting the material result that one desires. There's a similar story in the sixth canto of the Bhagavatam. And it's famous in this regard. That's the story of Mara's Chitraketu. So Bhagavatam is full of these kinds of stories. And we have to understand what Bhagavatam is teaching. It's teaching more than uh, religious life. It's teaching even more than a basic spiritual life. We have the famous famous aphorisms, atato dharma jignasu. Now is the time to inquire about religion, and that is followed by atato brahma jignasu. Now is the time to inquire about spirit, about brahman, about atma. And arguably, in in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, we have the aphorism atato rasa jignasu. Now is the entire time to inquire about rasa which is considered then to be the very essence of of Brahman. As we spoke this morning, Brahman, who's everywhere, moving. It's a very extraordinary uh, idea. And even while it so transcends humanity and even Brahman, in a sense, It appears before us in a very human-like appearance. And this is what Srimad Bhagavatam is really about. It's trying to introduce us to Brahman as rasa. It takes from the lead from the Upanishad, Dasuvai Saha, Taitari Upanishad, from the Anandavali, the chapter about Ananda, hmm? and it begins Nigamakalpataro, Galitam, Falam, Sukumukadamatadrabasam, Vitam, Pipata Bhagavatam, Rasam, Halayam, Muguraho, Rasika, Bhuvi, Bhavukaha. He says this is a book that is the ripened fruit of the tree of the Vedic knowledge. With so many branches of knowledge. But you, but you don't have to climb it to get the fruit. Such climbing of the tree of knowledge is a difficult task. But in this case, the fruit of the tree is galitam falam. It's ripe, and it's fallen from the tree. So very easy to go and get. Hmm? You can pick it up from the ground. It comes on your terms. 
That's why, why I say this is the highest ideal, but it's coming in the most, making itself most accessible. Coming within within uh, human society, hmm? so it's a ripe fruit and it's fallen from the tree. You can go and pick it up. Get this fruit of Srimad Bhagavatam. This is all about what is the romantic uh, life of the absolute. It's a very extraordinary idea. Hmm. And it speaks about it in such a way that we can enter in there. Hmm. It's said that to be interested in that is to have gone such a long distance in one spiritual uh, sojourn. Because this is obviously what what Krishna is interested in. People are basically interested in God for, for, for things that have no interest to God. For example, as the story tells, people are interested in God for things. And God's not a thing. And we're not a thing. We're something else. <laughs> Things are part of the ob objective world. Of atoms and electrons and uh, electromagnetism, forces like gravity and so forth. But Bhagavatam is not uh, dealing in any detail with, with that objective world. Even while it explains, explains it comprehensively. It says that it is maya. That which cannot be measured. If the objective world cannot be measured, to measure means to control, then what to speak of the subjective world, which is the measurer? We usually say that the objective world can be measured. And we make measurements about the world with mathematics, for example, which is the heart of science. And we understand things about the world to an extent that we can manipulate it in such a way as to bring about predictable results. So the world of things does lend itself to being measured. But Bhagavatam, while admitting that, 
goes on to say that to measure it completely, that is not possible. To bring it within the fist of your intellect, that is maya. That is an illusion. Do you, do you think that you could become an Ishwara Parama? To completely control the whole thing. Hmm. In fact, we control just a very little bit of it. Hmm. Only for a short time. So, if we cannot measure the measurable world, what to speak of measuring the immeasurable world that we are a member of? Do you understand what I'm saying? In the world of atoms and electrons and so forth, there's no, there's no such thing as experience. And in the world, subjective world of consciousness, there's only experience. How much different is experience and non-experience? They're opposites. You cannot get experience out of non-experience. Therefore, the idea is that consciousness is different from matter. It cannot be reduced to matter. The very exercise of attempting to reduce consciousness to matter requires consciousness to make the effort. A thing can be defined as much as it can be compared to other things. That's how we make definitions. Therefore, consciousness, which is not like anything in the objective world, it cannot be defined. That's why the Upanishads say, neti, neti. When talking about consciousness in an effort to define it, to explain it, it says, it's not this, it's not that. It's not this, it's not that. And this consciousness, this is the subject of Srimad Bhagavatam. Consciousness and its potential. We sometimes explain it as a book about the consciousness of consciousness. It's all about the possibilities within the subjective realm. In other words, it's not about gravity, like I say, or electromagnetic force, or strong and weak nuclear forces or energy. It's about sakya, dasya, vatsalya, madhurdya. 
which are really the things that we are preoccupied with in this world as well. Even if we are a scientist in the lab on the brink of a big discovery, but we get a message that something happened to our family, then we will go there. So we teach in Gaudiya Vaishnavism that the consciousness of consciousness is love. This is what Krishna is preoccupied with. Again, as we spoke this morning, this is what making Brahman move. This is resolving all contradictions. When you love someone, then their faults become ornaments. That's very wonderful. So, wise love. Srimad Bhagavatam is speaking about. And this love of things is not wise. I want to have a good son. I want to have a good daughter. <laughs> it's okay. But it's not wise love. And sometimes, even without pursuing that systematically, in consideration of Shastra and so forth. We get the result we want and we also get more. We get negative impetus. We chased after somebody for a long time. We finally got them. Then they turned into something else. It happens. Hmm. And, uh, the, the, those cute little children, <laughs> they don't always stay like that. Hmm. They become, a, they terrorize our lives and so forth. <laughs> We've been terrorists ourselves. It happens. Hmm. What does that do? In one sense, that gives the parents the opportunity to make sacrifices, hmm, to love us anyway, hmm, even when it's difficult. Hmm. So sometimes we find that even without pursuing Shastra in, in search of material acquisition or material results, We get an we get an extra hmm, that we don't always understand it for what it is. Hmm. Um, and sometimes, apparently, when following the shastra as well, but perhaps the person who's following the shastra in a religious way, when they get the extra, so to speak they can understand it a little better and the implications of it and they can take full advantage of it and go the distance 
by moving from a religious orientation to life to a spiritual orientation to life. From moving from asking God for things, hmm, where would we go from there? To ask, approach God for things, this is not very wise. Because things and their acquisition get in the way of our understanding ourself. And the more that we are. Like I've said before, the best things in life are not things. We talked about it this morning also. What is a lovable thing in this world? That is ourself. Only to the extent that we extend ourselves into things, do the things become meaningful, lovable, desirable to us. So it is the self that is the object of love in this world. And in the pursuit of things, that truth is obscured. So to move from a a orientation towards God in pursuit of material acquisition, we we'll, we can move from this dharma jignasu to brahma jignasu, to inquiring about the more that we are than what meets the eye and the mind. And in that pursuit, then we approach God for eternal life. If you approach God for things, oh, he has various agents by which such things can be provided. If you approach for eternal life, then he has to be involved a little bit. Hmm? But it's not something that is very uh, exciting to him. Hmm? If In pursuit of eternal life, we have, we are in pursuit of knowledge, really. We are in pursuit of that which is enduring. We cease from being in pursuit of enduring life in relation to things that don't endure. That's that's intelligent. Hmm? 
But both of these orientations are worldly, even while God is factored into them. The first orientation for things is obviously world-centered. The second orientation is for moving away from the world, for getting uh, release from attachment to things. Hmm? So that is also worldly centered, even while God is factored in to some extent. But in bhakti, we don't have a world-centered life, but truly a God-centered life. It's centered on what God is centered on, hmm? which is bhakti. Bhakti is that which is, again, bhakti makes Bhagwan. That's, that's a fact. Uh, it's not something that happens in time. But Brahman with bhakti is Bhagwan. When bhakti becomes the prominent factor, then Brahman starts to move. Hmm. If we approach Brahman with a little, little bit of bhakti, how little? We're not against bhakti. Then Brahman moves just a little bit, enough to make room for you. <laughs> Come in. <laughs> Something like that. Oh, that's all. You can enter Brahman and sit there forever. <laughs> uh, but this uh, is not really exciting to Bhagwan. Hmm? Uh, so to move from uh, pursuit of things to which is ignorance and bring suffering to a pursuit of knowledge which ends suffering and brings enduring life, peace. Bhagavatam wants to leave both of these orientations behind. and showcase and thereby invite us into the world of God's own life. This is what bhakti is about. Therefore, anya bilashita shunyam gyan karmari anavritam anukulena krishna anushilam bhakti rutam So Bhagavatam speaks about this directly and indirectly. So there are many stories of kings and others, many stories of kings pursuing things, having everything, losing everything. How by a life it means of material acquisition
you will never get your feet solidly on the ground. There will always be reversals. Hmm. So when we find instances in the Bhagavatam where someone, in this case a king, and as I mentioned in the sixth canto also, Maharaj Chitraketu, he wanted a son. He couldn't get a son. The whole kingdom was despondent. Narada Muni came, maybe with another friend, Angira Rishi. They gave him a potion, some herbs to give to his wife, and a blessing that this one wife, he had many wives, from this one wife he would get a son. So he was very happy. Hmm? But Nard advised him, you must name your son Harsha Shoka. Uh, Sukaduka. <laughs> Happiness and distress. So the king, Chitraketu, he thought, oh, these, these sages are quite interesting. Hmm. You're trying to remind me that my son, while making me very happy, sometimes he will be a little misbehaved. So, sometimes he will make me a little unhappy. This is how we think in material life. We tend to minimize the potential negatives of any material acquisition and maximize what appears to be the positives. More often than not, the negatives will be more prominent. And from the bigger picture, the positives are also negatives to begin with. It's losing proposition <laughs> from beginning to end. Hmm. Hmm. So anyway, the, the son was born. And oh, everyone was very happy. Son was born, a son. The king had a son, the king had a son. And the son would be the heir to the throne, as was the system in the, those days. And so the queen who gave birth to the son was getting so much attention that gradually the other queens, they started to become envious of her. So driven by their envy, they poisoned the son. And the son, who was dead, brought great distress to the king. Hmm. But this negative became a positive. 
In this case, Narada came back, made the dead son get up and speak philosophy to the king. <laughs> We shouldn't read Srimad Bhagavatam and expect that when we have a difficulty in our life, a negative, that someone like Narada Muni will come along and make it overwhelmingly clear to us <laughs> that, uh, that the negative is actually a positive when properly understood. but rather we are to read the Bhagavatam and understand these things from the text itself hmm? so that we become an arda. You see, so that we become wise from the text and start to pursue wise love. Hmm? Rather than the pursuit of things that don't endure and things that have no capacity to reciprocate experientially with us. Hmm? To pursue such things while actually in pursuit of enduring love. Love, love will be valued on a scale in which the degree of reciprocation between the two is measured, between the lover and the object of love. As we've already explained, matter doesn't have any capacity to reciprocate experientially. It doesn't experience our love. It cannot even express the most basic, basic aspect of love, gratitude. It cannot say thank you. And if it could, it wouldn't anyway. Because we aren't loving things. We are only exploiting things. We aren't giving anything to the thing. <laughs> We're only taking things. Even if love could experience, if matter could experience, it would complain. It would not say thank you. <laughs> so this is not a loving affair. Our interaction with things. And Bhagavatam wants to make that very clear. So there are many stories like this. And we read them and we find them interesting. But we don't think deeply to apply them in our lives. Yes, we should have a saint in our life. But don't expect that he will hover about this high off the ground. 
like Narada is depicted in the Bhagavatam. (laughs) We have to see even the Guru with eyes of love. Even Krishna with eyes of love to understand. So in this way, Bhagavatam is a lesson in love and in making, giving a lesson of love, it often gives a lesson of what is not love, a strong lesson. Hmm. And thus the king acquired something, he followed religiously, he got a son, but in this case in the fourth camp it was Venu who was a very big problem for the father and for others. So we are to learn that by material acquisition, there's through this there's no there's no assurance that uh, our lives will be happy. Does that help? Nice story. <laughs> Another question? Shastra what? Some of them. Well, the secular theory of Ras Shastra in India hmm, does carry with it the idea that the arts, for example, drama and so forth, have the capacity to transport us from where we are sitting as an observer into the emotional experience of the drama. And we all have experience of that. You go to the movies and you cry or you laugh or you feel courage and um, fear and so on and so forth. So the secular us uh, Shastra commentators and so forth they uh, have a religi- had a religious orientation in their own lives at the same time hmm. and so they looked at this ability of the creative arts to transport us somewhat 
beyond our immediate self. To be something like what the religious texts speak about when they speak about uh, Brahman. Hmm? Um, leaving the world of one's immediate and limited experience hmm, to a greater, uh, more profound experience. So they made some comparison like this. Hmm. But Rupa Goswami, while he used the creative arts to explain the love life of Bhagwan in human language and so forth, and using that as a medium to communicate something about that experience to us. Hmm. He had a different, uh, has a different idea. Hmm. Mahaprabhu Sri Chaitanya Dev said, Nadanam, Najanam, Nasundarim, Kovitamba. You understand? He said, I don't want followers in all the prestige of people thinking I'm something important. I have no interest in that. I don't want wealth and all that comes with that. I have no uh, no need for a significant other, an emotional, physical partner in my life. Nadanam, nadanam, nasundarim, kovitam. And neither do I have any interest in the arts. This is what he's saying. Kovitam. Poetry, drama, and so forth. This was considered to be the upper rim of the cultured and religious at that time and intellectual society. Some people listen to hip-hop and some people go to the opera. Hmm? So, and some people read, you know, detectives' novels and uh, some people read Dostoevsky or, you know, uh, what not. <laughs> Uh, uh, literature, hmm. right? So this literature and the arts—they are transporting to an extent. Hmm? They are pursuing the finer things, the feelings the sentiments. It's somewhat in pursuit of the subjective more than it is in pursuit of the objective. 
you understand? It's in pursuit of the, the, the feeling of a thing. Hmm? The experience. And art wants to try to depict the experience. It's not just how, how technically well it's drawn necessarily, but how much it transports you into the experience that it seeks to convey. Hmm? So this is more subtle and a refined type of life. Indeed, it's, it's in pursuit of the subjective more than it's, in, than it's in pursuit of the objective. We could say it's in pursuit of qualia. Qualia. Qualia, qualia means a philosophical term. It means the subjective experience like red. To experience red. You could know everything about red physically. How, what kind of photons and what, how much refracted light and so forth makes red. You could know everything about red physically, but not have the experience of red, which is private. Hmm? Other people have it, but it's all subjective. Do you understand? Hmm? So these feelings, subjective feelings, there's nothing in our brain that gives any reason. There's no place you can press to get red, green feeling. Hmm? What these things are from the point of view of Vedanta, in Vedanta, the self, the experiencer, experiences an approximation of the objective world through the medium of the mind. Hmm? And what appears in the mind as qualia, hmm? this is its approximate experience of what the world is like. That's why, for example, years ago, what was his name? Heisenberg? I think it was Heisenberg, the science physicist, he said, we don't experience matter as it is. We experience our experience of matter. That's why I said earlier, we can't even really measure matter. Hmm? So, so the arts and so forth, they're very much about this uh, the subjective experience but we should also understand which seems to be otherworldly hmm? it's in the realm of consciousness it's about conscious experience but we should understand as I'm explaining that conscious experience is an approximation of what matter is that the experiencer 
is experiencing. So, the point I'm making is that while there's a difference between the experienced matter and experience, material experience, these feelings as a result of being somewhat in touch with the objective world, that the arts are concerned with and psychology is concerned with and so on and so forth. While these feelings are different, they have a different quality from matter. They can't be found in matter alone. Hmm? They are at the same time different from the experiencer himself. This is an important point because in philosophy of mind and neuroscience and so forth, this qualia is taken to be the sum and substance of what consciousness is. And the identity that's formed on the basis of this qualia, we call that the false ego. That's different than ourself, you understand? There is an identity that's formed on the basis of this qualia. And sometimes in science they say, there's nobody really there. It's just a bundle of experiences. And they're right. <laughs> but they miss then the point in studying consciousness of what, according to Vedanta, consciousness actually is. Consciousness is experience well, we can't really define it, but we say experiential first-person reality. You cannot do away with experience. Hmm? At any rate, the arts and so forth, they are very much dealing with something very subtle that has a quasi-spiritual type of um, appearance. Oftentimes in modern society, Psychology is conflated with spirituality. <laughs> Certainly, the psychological dimension has more similarity with spirituality in, than, than the, in the physical world. Hmm? But still, the two are, they are different realms. We can work with our psychology, no doubt, to understand our motives and so on and so forth and be better equipped to pursue our spiritual life and so forth. But the experiencer is different than the, than the, the experience that is an approximation through the medium of, of the mind, an approximation of the gross matter, atoms and things and so forth. So, so it's understandable that the, the arts being preoccupied as they are with such, as, as limitedly as I've been able to, and inadequately as I've been able to comment on them, 
that they have a quasi in a spiritual type of um, uh, appearance. Hmm? But Mahaprabhu said, Kobitam Ba, neither I'm interested in the arts. Hmm? Nonetheless, I will use the arts to try to explain something about the the world of the experiencer and the love life of God ultimately. Therefore, as I say, Rupa Goswami used that secular Ras Shastra language and so forth in erecting his um, edifice of of bhakti rasa bhakti rasamrita sindhu mm. um, so uh, your question is do the can the creative process in and of itself by expressing oneself creatively in music in art in dance in theater and so forth give one genuine spiritual experience. Rupa Jiva Goswami was generous when he said that (laughs) that we can, there's one rasa that we can taste. He said, vibhatsa, vibhatsa, this rasa, that is the rasa of disgust. <laughs> it means, <laughs> it, it means, however you mix the material world, hmm, it will be disappointing. Hmm, ultimately, hmm. Uh, so we don't agree with the idea that the creative process, in and of itself, uh, the mind has many possibilities and uh, and um, to exp- uh, and to express feelings mm-hmm. what are the feelings hmm? that we will be expressing however creatively hmm? ultimately if we can express how disappointing material life is some of you Finnish people might be able to relate with the melancholy of, <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of uh, life. Uh, some it's maybe maybe from Eastern Europe and the communist influence also. You know, America is full of optimism and so forth. <laughs> they have to get over that. Hmm. Get, get get over their perennial optimism and accept it. Sometimes there'll be sorrow, and sometimes there'll be sorrow. Hmm. <laughs> A lot of times, hmm. and um, that again, hmm, if we can draw that, and from that derive negative impetus. to pursue more 
in a different way, hmm? in an entirely different, by an entirely different approach, hmm? by a spiritual methodology. After all, the arts and so forth are an effort. They're kind of an objective effort to plumb the depths of the subjective reality. Whereas bhakti, first and foremost, but also yoga, jnana, as spiritual disciplines, they're actually subjective methodologies for experiencing what the subjective side of life constitutes in its fullness. That makes sense to use a subjective methodology to examine subjectivity. Hmm? Does that help? You have a comment further? Yeah. But the, the real one that takes you somewhere higher uh, is kind of state of mukti. Brahman. Yeah. Is it That's their idea. They say that it gives one a semblance of an experience of Brahman. Because it takes you out. The idea of Brahman is that you you are you are you you're transported out of the world of your limited experience. So they say that these things give us some ex- some experience in the world that there is a reality beyond the smallness of our present reality. And the arts are an example of that because they take us into a bigger sense beyond ourselves and so forth. We might be a small-minded person and go to the movie just to entertain ourselves. But the movie may be such a great movie that it brings compassion in our heart that we didn't have before. And we became a bigger person. We got transported beyond. So they're simply saying that just as the arts have some ability to transport us outside of our small world, hmm? So this Brahman is to be really outside of the world and and there's possibility of there is possibility of going beyond the smallness of your self centered world. Hmm? Um but they they say only that this transporting of oneself beyond one's self centered limited life through the arts is an approximation of Brahman. Right, right. An approximation of Brahman. Uh, and, and then those who build upon that, they would say that the Shantarasa, that is the highest. 
We don't say that. <laughs> we say that the Shanta Rasa is maybe a Rasa. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, something like that. It can be, even be changed. <clears throat> From Shanta Rasa, you can move into Dasya Rasa. But having arrived at Dasya Rasa or Sakya Rasa, Matsalya Rasa, Madhuya Rasa, no movement. Hmm? You are, this is real love. So we say Shantarasa, yeah, it's, we make a generous, yes, it, it's a rasa. Hmm? But we have no interest in it, something like that. So this is a kind of a, uh, not a bhakti perspective, hmm? but a gyan perspective. And note that the idea of being transported beyond oneself in this scenario means to be transported beyond emotion to an, an emotionless condition, in a sense. Shantaras is emotionless, it's passive. Hmm? Whereas in Bhakti Rasa, we are saying that the basis of emotive experience is the observer himself, consciousness himself, itself, the experiencer. Hmm? And when that conscious experiencer interfaces with Bhagwan through bhakti, hmm, that it has emotional life of dasya, sakya, vatsalya, madhurya, and so forth in relation to Bhagwan. Hmm? So that's a, a big difference. That helps, huh? Yeah. That's a good question. Thank you. What else? Right. Also in Gloria Chapter, uh, Krishna is recommending Arjuna a short part of Nishkan Karma Smarana in the highest process of approaching Supreme. First of all, you asked that if bhakti is the easiest way, why there are so few devotees? I would say to you that that in the world the vast majority of people believe in God. Right? Whether their belief in God is well reasoned or not, that is another thing. 
but the vast majority of people believe in God. And the vast majority of people who believe in God have a basic bhakti orientation to God. All of Christianity has a bhakti orientation to God in a generic sense of bhakti in which there's the object of love and then there's the lover who gives the love. Hmm? All of Christianity has this. Um, all of Islam has this. All of Judaism has this. Hmm? Um, much of Buddhism has this. Amongst the uh, Oriental countries where Buddhism is prominent, you will find a majority of lay people involved in some type of, type of worship of Buddha. So, in this sense, there is more bhakti than there is gyan, for example, or yoga. If we take these three approaches, bhakti, gyan, and yoga, given in the Gita, transcendental uh, paths, hmm? paths that are ego-effacing and lead to transcendence, to Brahman, to Paramatma, and to Bhagwan. Hmm? In the broadest sense, Bhakti and Bhagwan are most attractive. Hmm? Of course, at the same time, in order for bhakti to be uh, fruitful ultimately, the bhakti has to become wise and and so on and so forth. And we have to have sufficient sambandha jnana and, and so forth. But in the general sense, I think it's accurate to say that bhakti is the easiest way and people take the easiest way and and it's a simple understanding. There's myself and there's God and I worship God and so forth. Hmm? Um, then again, if we look at the paths of bhakti, jnana, and yoga very closely with a philosophical eye as to what they constitute, hmm, still the practice of bhakti is easier than jnana and yoga. Hmm? Because I'll give you one simple example. According to Ashtanga Yoga, which is what is given in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, and what is given in the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, in order to practice yoga, one has to practice celibacy. In order to practice bhakti, one does not have to practice celibacy. That should make the point that bhakti is much easier and a much more generous path. Arguably, it is a more powerful path. Hmm? Because preoccupation with the, with the uh, um, 
with with, with sex life is t- tends to be obviously very binding hmm, to material life. So much so, in order to practice yoga and jnana, you have to put, put that aside. There's a prerequisite. There's no such prerequisite for bhakti. And the implication is that bhakti has the power hmm, to affect us regardless of what situation we're in. Hmm. So in that sense, bhakti is, is easier. And in many senses also, because we get to use our senses Rather than to stop using them, we are accustomed to interacting with sense objects, and bhakti allows us to interact with sense objects in a qualified way. Hmm? We're interacting with sense objects for the sake of employing them in the service of Bhagwan, for example. But even when we do that, we get the sensual experience that we would have gotten anyway, and we get more. So in that way, it's very easy by comparison. But we should not think that it's easy, period. Easy by comparison. <laughs> hmm? <laughs> but uh, it, it is a great challenge, nonetheless. Hmm? It, is, it, is, it is a yoga. So it has been also depicted in the Gita as a, uh, as a battle. Hmm? And so... It's it's a battle that you will win for sure. You cannot fall down in bhakti. Hmm? There's no falling from bhakti. There may be an appearance of falling, but nothing's ever lost in bhakti. So there's never any falling. There's never any losing, in other words, what you got. Hmm? It's like... It's kind of like you climb the mountain and you throw the rope up and then you climb there and you tie it. Then maybe you fall down, but you still got the rope up here. So you get back up there very easily, something like that. So, the, so um, you, can't, you can't lose. It may take some time. Hmm? You may lose some battles, but you will not lose the war. Hmm? Something like that. So it's very uh, encouraging. So it is very uh, uh, easy. It also it is easy in the sense that it posits the idea that the love that we all pursue in this world hmm, has a basis in reality. In Yoga Marg and Gyan Marg, that's not the case. In Gyan Marg, the only love is the love to exist. While in the jnanis love to exist, we exist to love. Hmm. There's a big difference. Hmm. Yoga is more about knowing than loving. It culminates in Shantarasa. Ashtanga Yoga culminates in Shantarasa. That is much, much more than Brahman realization. But it's a very, very small thing compared to Dasyarasa, Sakyarasa, and what to speak of the Brajalila. Hmm? So love, I want to say, is really fully 
the focus of bhakti and it says to us bhakti therefore that the love that we pursue is at the heart of reality rather than saying to us reality is not about love it's about being and well loving to be that's not much love in in a sense it's very self-centered if you will even though it's spiritual so we, we all sense that life is about love we all pursue love hmm? so the bhakti message is very confirming in a sense as to what our own experience is and our sense derived from that experience that life must be about it must be about love in bhakti there are ups and downs there is union there is separation hmm? Even Krishna is wondering, she loves me, she loves me not. He needs his friends to say, yes, Radhe, she loves you, don't worry. Hmm? So it uh, <laughs> it's full of uh, movement, variety, and so forth. So this is what our experience in, in everyday life is, that, that w- th- these things are desirable. Hmm? As As awkward as love can be, and as disappointing as love can be, it's it, it's still the most desirable thing. Hmm? I often said that we, we move, we cannot rest until we find love. And when we find love, we can't rest either. We start to move again in another way. Hmm? You understand? So we can make these, draw upon these examples of human life hmm? that are so real, so tangible to us. Hmm? And they serve as confirmation as to the nature of ultimate reality and our potential as a soul uh, in ways that jnana and yoga don't touch. Hmm? They have to deny so, so much that is so basic to our experience hmm? that it's counterintuitive. Bhakti is very intuitively uh, sensible to us in our human experience. You follow? And we even say that Krishna, in order to fully experience himself, he, he, he comes to human society. Hmm? So it's a very humanistic uh, spirituality here. Uh, theological humanism, the, theistic humanism, something like that. Hmm? And it's also very, uh, it's also a theistic agnosticism hmm, at the same time. Because if you really look at the theistic arguments and the atheistic arguments, really rationally, objectively, you have to come to some agnosticism. You could say, I don't know. They both, you know, you can make that argument. You can make that argument. Hmm? So in Bhakti, we are theistic agnostics because we say we cannot know God completely. God cannot know Himself completely. He's trying to know Himself. He becomes as Chaitanya to try to know himself through the eyes of another, through the eyes of Radha. And he's having trouble doing that. And we're okay with that. Hmm? We're okay with the fact that God doesn't know. Hmm? That's very disconcerting to the yogis. He doesn't know. (laughs) To the jnanis, they want knowledge. (laughs) They find out God doesn't know. (laughs) Now their whole... 
the whole, whole path has become disturbed. But we are not disturbed by that. Hmm? We, uh, love is full of uncertainty, for sure. Hmm? Do you understand? So we are comfortable with that. Hmm? This is, is what life is like, you see. So this is very, this way it's very easy. It's easier to accommodate. It, 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 it speaks to the nature of our experience rather than to an artificial imposition upon the self. And then there in the 12th chapter, which is entitled Bhakti Yoga, it's about bhakti yoga. Krishna asks Arjun, just, just remember me. Just meditate upon me. Hmm? But then he says, but if you can't just meditate on me, then, then abhyas yoga, then, then, then practice doing it. Practice remembering me. This is smarnam. Hmm? But, you might not be qualified for that either. Hmm? Then he says, so just do Vaidhi Bhakti. Hmm? Do hearing, chanting, serving the deity, planting Tulsi, and all these things. He says, but if you can't do that, hmm? then he goes down the ladder to Nishkam Karma Yoga. Hmm? Ultimately, Prabhupada says, I think, in his purport, just give something somewhere <laughs> to somebody. More or less. Huh? So just start giving. You have to start somewhere. Something like that. Hmm? Uh, because love is about giving. And the point here is also that in order to give fully, we have to give without any attachment to getting. And we also have to give to a center that can actually take everything. If we don't have the latter, we can't have the former. Hmm? We cannot give completely if the object to which we give cannot take completely. Hmm? Because giving is actually getting, and when we actually give, having both things in place, no, motiv no motivation for getting, and giving to a center that can actually take, then only and proportionately does the giving equal the getting. Because the center is such that upon giving to the center, it distributes to the circumference. Like the stomach. If you give to the stomach, like no other part of the body, the stomach can distribute the food, the energy, to all the parts. Hmm? So giving to the stomach on the part of the hand is getting. Hmm? So, I mean, it's a real thing that you actually do get when you give. Hmm? But the art of yoga and bhakti is how to give. Hmm? So we may give to an object that's not capable of taking, and we may not, and we may give with an object of get, with the objective of getting as well. So there's all kind of problems with our giving. But at the same time, giving is very powerful. It's what we are about. Ultimately, we're we're a unit of of giving capacity. 
So if we start to give somewhere, giving will start to inform and refine hmm, the object. We may give to the wrong object, but the giving tendency, hmm, if we allow that to come within us, will start to refine